so basically that's that's what we need to be aware of is stop the push of marketing products and start slowing down and understanding but also more precision medicine we need precision medicine we need to pay attention to the individual cases because the individual cases get us to the answers are you struggling with bloating gas constipation and fatigue but don't know what's causing these problems the gut health reset podcast with dr Anne marie barter dives deep into the root causes behind these issues that start in the gut This podcast will give you the knowledge you need to heal your gut and reset your health. Dr. Hazen, it is so great to have you back. It was so interesting, our conversation on COVID. So I am very excited to dig into obesity and the microbiome because, you know, a lot of people talk about how the gut is very much linked to obesity, but no one really goes any further than that. So I'm very excited to dig in. So thank you so much for being back today. My pleasure. Um, Awesome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So how is obesity linked to the microbiome? So I did a study with uh, Dr. Ornelas Selman, who's uh, very, uh, you know, world-renowned in uh, microbiology at, um, at University of Arizona Cancer Center. And basically what we looked at was uh, giving mice, two groups of mice, where one we gave palm oil and the other one we gave soybean oil. And we discovered that while we gave the palm oil to one group, you know, there were skinny mice and the soybean to the other, uh, one of the groups had became obese, but more importantly on their microbiome, because we were involved with basically um, collecting the stools and analyzing the microbiome. Um, Andreas Papuzzi, it was like his passion to work uh, with this professor. And so, and he's been working with this professor for years. So he said, we need to analyze the, the stools of mice. And, you know, I'm into the human feces, not mice, but I said, okay, yeah, I'm game. And so what we discovered was actually that when you do feed fat to the mice, they became obese, which we knew, but also their microbiome changed. The microbes that were, you know, that we think of as healthy essentially um, became uh, lost. So we lost groups and species of microbes. And that's basically... Um, you know, the clostridiums were low, the lachnospirisae, the, the uh, firmicutes were low. None of this that's like, you know, for the common, for people that don't understand microbes would understand. But for us as scientists, it was kind of an introduction to the fact that here you are, you're putting fat in the body of a mouse, and then that mouse develops a microbiome dysbiosis which set the premise for, is that what happens to human beings? Do do we start giving fat to human beings? And remember the fat of 20 years ago and the fat of today is completely different. You know, the beef of 20 years ago, the milk of 20 years ago is completely different than what we have today. So is that fat um, changing the microbiome of people and therefore they become obese and are not uh, able to lose weight? And, you know, I have a patient of mine who approached me, he's 880 pounds. And he said, look, I've been looking at the mouse studies because there was a study, uh, Jessica Allegretti, uh, basically that showed that if you put stools from a skinny mouse 
from a, a skinny mouse, from a fat mouse to a skinny mouse, the skinny mouse becomes fat, right? And so the question becomes, if you transplant and vice versa, you could think that the same thing applies, right? So if you transplant a skinny person that's healthy, metabolic, you know, has a good microbiome to a person that's overweight and 880 pounds, could that help that person uh, lose weight? And so this patient approached me to look at his microbiome and to start that process. You know, of course, it takes any time you start thinking of doing fecal transplant for anything, be it ALS, MS, Parkinson's, autism, you have to submit what's called individual, um, it's an IND, um, uh, basically investigative uh, new drug protocol um, to the FDA. And essentially that protocol um, gets approved. Once it gets approved, we get the green light to do fecal transplant. So that case never really happened uh, for that patient because we're not there yet and COVID happened. So we were busy. But, you know, it, it, for this patient who was actually, you know, he went through multiple centers, went through to Cornell, et cetera, to try uh, or Stanford rather to try to fix his obesity. He was put on a, on a restrictive diet. He was watched. He was they really tried to drop his weight. You know, one wonders at that point, is it that he's messed up his microbiome completely and therefore needs a new set of microbes to start fighting and regrowing? You know, I like to think of the microbiome, you know, in our gut, like our little gardens. You're wiping out the, the you're wiping out the, the ground and then you're replanting, you're turning around and replanting new seeds. And that's what basically it is. So does this patient need a new garden? Uh, to restart, maybe. I mean, that's why um, I think we need to advance the science and advance medicine on that, on those cases, and push, you know, the envelope to say, let's start. Let's start seeing. I mean, here's a guy who's 880 pounds. He wants to do it. He's, um, you know, he doesn't like his life the way it is. Uh, I think it's up to us as physicians to try to help, and that's what I'm trying to do: help that figure it out. So we looked at his microbiome. Um, we also looked at the microbiome of multiple overweight patients that had a hard time, um, you know, gain, uh, losing weight. And we did discover some kind of dysbiotic uh, formula. It's too early in, in the stage to, at this stage to kind of say, yes, this is the answer or not. But, you know, I'm still looking. So, you know, what we do with our clinical trials is basically as people come and we start analyzing, we put them in a category, you know, like this microbiome autism, this microbiome Parkinson's, older folks, younger folk, vegan, vegetarian, uh, Indian from India, Indian from, from uh, America, you know? So I think all that um, makes, at some point, we're gonna have a better picture. Right now we're seeing kind of a big picture. We need to just zone in a little bit more and analyze everything carefully. And I think it has, you know, um, it helps to understand these microbes. It helps to understand, you know, I don't think it's at, at the level of, of artificial intelligence per se. Uh, I think the computerized system and bioinformatics are definitely helpful, uh, but I think it needs the human eye to look at all these microbes because all these microbes all tell a story. 
And it's a story that, you know, may have been, you know, seen somewhere by a physician. And I think it's not only just one physician. I think it needs to be multiple physicians. You know, I work with a lot of talented physicians from Dr. Jordan, from UCLA and USC, top neurologist in the world, in my opinion, um, to Dr. Uh, uh, Bistritsky, who's the top psychiatrist, to, you know, so many infectious disease, Mason Nuritin, in fact, and fatty liver at Cedars-Sinai. Um, I work with him. We're looking, we're going to be looking at fatty liver um, microbiome. And so that's the future, in my opinion. But it takes a lot of people to look at all that. It sure does. Have you seen any sort of patterns with bacteria that help people lose weight? Not so far. Uh, there is one group of bacteria that maybe we could say it's present in pe- those people. So the same time that we've analyzed overweight patients, we've also analyzed patients that are hypermetabolizers, I like to call them. The kid that eats 10,000 calories a day and doesn't gain a pound. I want to see that microbiome, right? Because I want that microbiome because, you know, after uh, trying to get pregnant and all these medications that they gave me, I'm, you know, I've messed up my microbiome a little bit. And it's, you know, I used to be the girl that would eat, you know, a a whole tuna melt and not gain a pound. And now I'm eating a cucumber and gaining a pound. So something changed in my microbiome as well that basically um, makes it that it's difficult to lose weight. Also the change in environment, you know, if I go to France and I start eating the baguettes in France, I'm fine. I don't get, gain weight. I come back to America, I'm eating the bread and I'm gaining weight. So something's there in the food, in the supervision of the food that you have to ask, is that also contributing to our weight gain and our inabilities to lose weight? So it's not just a bacteria. It's really figuring out what is causing the, the killing of the bacteria that we may think is, is uh, involved with weight loss. So, And I may have missed this when you said it, but on the mouse study, did yeah. you find that both subsets of mice gained weight with both the soybean no. and the palm oil or... Yeah, no, it was actually the soybean that was that uh, gained the weight. Okay, and it was a soybean. Yeah. Okay, that's so that's so interesting. Okay, so we don't and we don't really know what bacteria are to blame yet for the obesity epidemic. Correct. Correct. Ah, I wish okay. we did. <laughs> and, even, and even that, I mean, we're going to be figuring it out. I mean, look at how far we've done with, you know, but of course, COVID put a damper on everything, uh, on obesity, on Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, autism, all of it. So um, I think I think we will. It's just a matter of time. Right now, my focus with this with this lab is really to figure out COVID to get us out of COVID. So we know that when there's obesity involved, we have metabolic syndrome, right? So associated with high cholesterol, high blood sugar, and also it can be associated with higher liver enzymes, which can lead to something called um, fatty liver. What has your research been? Because you've researched fatty liver quite a bit and, and have followed that. So what yeah, have you seen with that? So I've done a lot of clinical trials on fatty liver with potential treatments for for fatty liver, whether it's at the level of, you know, uh, uh, biologic or monoclonal antibody or a uh, 
you know, hormonal treatment, definitely uh, fatty liver has a, has a big interest, right? Because 25 years ago, and this is what I said at the beginning, the fat that we ate 25 years ago and the milk we drank 25 years ago is different from the milk and the fat we eat today. And the big question becomes, is, um, is the fat different? Has the fat accumulated some toxins in it that then becomes toxic for the fatty liver? So I remember when I was a resident at Jackson Memorial Hospital, Eugene Schiff, who wrote the book on hepatology, was my mentor. And he was uh, the mentor for a lot of my friends. Uh, and we used to see fatty liver back then, right? Back in the days of HIV and hepatitis C. And the focus was really HIV and hepatitis C because that was that had a small risk of killing people, right? Where they would end up in end-stage liver failure. So I remember fatty liver was always one of those that, you know, my attending would say, don't even worry about fatty liver. They're going to be fine, right? But they were fine back then when the fat was different. They're not fine now. Now fatty liver patients end up in liver failure, the same as the same percentage as what, and probably a bit higher. And Dr. Nuridin would talk to you about more about that. So I, I encourage you to invite him, Dr. Mason Nuridin at uh, Cedar sinai And he will tell you that it is on the rise. End-stage liver disease occurs in people with fatty liver. One wonders if maybe the fat, one wonders if maybe the microbiome is altered and therefore the, the bacteria. So for example, in the fatty, in the in the mice studies, we discovered low clostridium, low firmicutes, and low lachnospherocyte. Could those three bacteria, the disappearance of all these three bacteria, be the culprit why fatty liver is on the rise? That's what we need to look at. So the same way that we did those, that mouse study, we need to look at, let's look at the, at the microbiome of fatty liver patients and see if they're lacking those microbes, right? But of course, who's going to invest in that unless you're developing a product? And that's, that's the big challenge with clinical research in the microbiome space is that it isn't individualized. It is looking for a formula that is not there yet. We're at the beginning. You know, most investors like a product, like think about it, a probiotic drink that they can like flip Oh, probiotics are good for, for you. Let's start the marketing. Let's put a million dollars into marketing. Let's sell this probiotic drink, right? And then they come to find out later, probiotic drink is not doing anything, right? Because then by the time we get this probiotic drink, we start testing it in our lab. We do the clinical trials. We find out, well, these probiotics drinks are not doing anything, right? So, or that drink particular. So, I think, you know, the technology, the trying, the marketing of these products goes way faster than the science. And we need to follow the science to cut to before we sell these products, because the danger is when you sell a product that says, hey, guess what? This product is, you know, improving your microbiome or you're losing weight with this product. But then it does the opposite and it causes you something else or it damages the microbiome then you've really, there's no recourse on that. And you'll never really know because nobody really tested that, right? So I think with the technology of looking at the microbiome, as we're developing these assays to help people figure out their obesity, their Crohn's, their Parkinson's, their Alzheimer's, the autism, as we develop more and more assays, and we're just at the beginning, 
I always tell people, we're at mile one of 300,000. I'm trying to speed it up as much as possible. There's other labs that are trying to do the stuff. and But the data is still very, you know, very new. I mean, you know, we didn't know about the mice studies and fat, you know, until we did that study. So many people struggle with bloating, bowel issues, brain fog, fatigue. You might not even have any gut issues, but did you know the cause of it could be food sensitivities or gut infections? What I have done is I have brought a talented functional nutritionist into my practice. We have very similar training in the nutritional world. And her name is Alexis Appleberry. She is awesome. So you can head on over to our website, Alt ALT, FAM, FAM, Med, MED, and have a consultation with her and schedule so that she can help you get to the root cause of your problems. So basically that's, that's what we need to be aware of is stop the push of marketing products and start slowing down and understanding, but also more precision medicine. We need precision medicine. We need, um, we need to pay attention to the individual cases because the individual cases get us to the answers. And are you seeing a huge increase in fatty liver overall? Oh, yes. Yes. And a huge increase in obesity overall. I mean, look at, you know, 25 years ago. And if you look at the map, and that's usually what I like to show on my presentation. If you look at the map of the world, you know, 50%, look at the map of America, first of all, 50% of the population is overweight. And then probably about 30% is morbidly obese, right? And then you look at the map of the world, well, it's pretty much starting to creep up, you know, like, Australia was not an obese country, and now they're starting to become, you know, obese. And then the Karabati, uh, Dr. Michael Gorin from USC did an amazing study on looking at the population of kids and adults in Karabati Island in the Pacific, who, you know, used to eat fruits and vegetables, were healthy non-diabetics. And basically now their diet changed, they globalized their foods, and started eating a lot of chips and sodas. And, and of course, with that, obesity increases because they're no longer fishing, they're no longer hunting, they're no longer growing, planting, they're counting on other countries to just subsidize them with food. And so that changes the microbiome and the culture. So these kids, there's a you know high, high rate of mortality uh, in that population from that complications of diabetes and heart disease, et cetera. And they're also on an island. So it's very difficult to get the, the kind of care we get here in America. So if you look at these islands, the rate of obesity is high. That's why it's important in a way to protect these islands during COVID because they are, you know, um, at risk of catching COVID because the, the, the risk is higher in overweight in patients that are have a weight problem. Absolutely. That's fascinating. So it's really coming down. What I hear you saying is it's really coming down to the processing of our food, to the chemicals in our food that's really affecting and destroying our microbiota. So kind of uh, the lesson that I'm hearing is, you know, eat real food. Um, and you know, quality. Quality. It really is. I, I think, you know, unfortunately, the FDA is stretched, right? So, 
you know, when I show you a paper where basically, you know, our foods that we think has a certain bacteria doesn't have that certain bacteria, you know, the, who's checking that, right? Who's checking all, I mean, the population is big and of course there's products that are just coming out and out. But I think at some point we need to stop the mass consumption. I think, you know, places that are selling mass products, you know, the gallon of cream cheese that you're buying at Costco, you don't need to buy a gallon of cream cheese because pretty soon you're going to be wearing that cream cheese. So maybe we just need that small little container and just, you know, change just a little bit more diversity and less of the quantity. And I think that's the problem is we've become too much. Too much of anything is bad. You know, too much uh, alcohol is bad. Too much coffee is bad. Too much uh, fat is bad. Everything in moderation is okay but too much of anything. So I think overproduction and with the overproduction, not enough quality, super, I think we need to, you know, 2022 and, and above needs to be a years of quality, supervising the quality, supervising the milk, making sure that the milk that I'm drinking is actually not infected or the, the foods that I'm eating or, you know, and I think it starts... At the farming level, I'm a big pusher of regenerative farming. Um, I think regenerative farmers do a very good job at keeping their farm relatively clean in a way. Um, you know, they're not having these cows one on top of the other and diseases. You know, when you put, you know, a small little space and you you put a bunch of chickens all together in there and you expect them to, to give you eggs, that quality of those eggs are not going to be good. You know it. I mean, it's just, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Same thing with the cows. I mean, if you stick them all and you want to eat your beef, but you're eating a beef from a farm that's like all stock and, you know, massive production, that's not a good idea either. So that's why there's been that push of like going, you know, vegan, going vegetarian, going plant-based. And people have been noticing differences with all these diets. Uh, mainly because of the fact that, you know, I think the quality at the farming itself um, has a lot to be um, to be desired, you know. And yeah. then right on top of that, you know, the pesticide on the soil, I mean, we could go on. I mean, it starts with the soil. If you destroy the microbiome in the soil and the cows eating that soil and then you inject some antibiotics in your cows, what do you expect, right? I mean, it wasn't up until two years ago that the FDA stopped the injection of, of antibiotics uh, to cows, right? And that was, you know, the process of trying to make the cows fatter, right? So, but the problem is those cows got these antibiotics. It's in their bodies. It's in their fat. You're eating the beef and the, and the fat. You're essentially ingesting those antibiotics, right? And so... When a kid comes in and he's had C. diff and, you know, all he did was eat a bunch of hamburgers, you got to ask, was the hamburger full of antibiotics, you know, and therefore he killed his microbiome and therefore got uh, C. diff. So, you know, that's why you ask the questions. Yeah, that's a great point. You also bring up one other point in your book. There's, there's a couple of things. Your book is awesome. But there's, there are, and it's really funny, you know, it's just kind of tongue in cheek. So, um, yeah. but you bring up a couple really important points that I've seen in practice 
but I don't think anybody's talking about them. The the first thing is, you know, talking about some of the food sensitivities and you you kind of go through some of the common ones like dairy, but you bring in one that's interesting. You talk about oats and this is dear to my heart because I definitely have that sensitivity, yes. but I've also seen multiple people in my practice also have that sensitivity. So can you talk a little bit about being sensitive to oats as well? Yeah. So I test food allergies like you do, right? And, you know, food allergies in the past wasn't as rampant as it is right now, right? So when you see, you know, an increase in oat sensitivity, you have to uh, to wonder, is oat even really good for us? And what's the benefit of it? And is it good for some and not for others? I have that oat sensitivity as well. So that's the main reason. And I think it happened to me. You know, I took antibiotics as a kid and probably destroyed my microbiome. And, you know, so and then, of course, uh, trying to get pregnant, all these medications. So I think you wonder if you destroy your microbiome to the point that you're lacking the bacteria that probably metabolizes the oat. And that's, of course, that's a very simple way of explaining it. But I think, you know, to me, if you can't explain science and simplify it, then you don't understand science. And I, I have to agree, agree with Albert Einstein on that. If you can't, un, if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, then you don't understand it. And so to me, that's, that's the, Easiest way that I process it is basically maybe we're missing the microbes that don't digest, or maybe we weren't supposed to eat those um, those foods. Yeah, well said. Well, I just love having you back. I don't want to take up any more of your time today. Mm-hmm. You've just been such a wealth of information. I mean, your book says it all, so it is just mm-hmm. such a fun read. So thank you so much for mm-hmm. being okay. back on the show today. Really appreciate mm-hmm. it. Appreciate it. And, and where can people find your book if they want Amazon. to read it? So Amazon.com. Um, let's talk sh.t. Uh, <laughs> I that because I, I took I, I published it during the pandemic and I said to myself, well, you know what, the pandemic is just that. So I said, I'm just gonna call it that. And also I didn't want to sugarcoat it, you know, we're sugarcoating microbiome. You know, let's call it what it is, right? When we do fecal transplant, it is fecal material we're processing. Yes, we could call it microbiota transplant to make it sexier or even refluoralization. I changed it to refluoralization because I was feces constantly reminding myself I play with feces. My mom was like telling me to stop doing what I do as a job. So I said, mom, I'm just refluoralizing the gut. It's like bringing flowers into the gut. So, um, but, you know, I wanted people to know, I wanted to people to also pay attention to their microbiome, you know, so every time they flush, they're thinking, oh, I remember seeing this in her book that it shouldn't be floating, it should sink, or it shouldn't be this color. And so I think that's the main thing, because if you pay attention to your stools, that's the first hint that you're going to have something, right? How many Parkinson's patients have we seen where the first symptom is constipation? How many, you know, um, MS patients, they had trouble swallowing and then they had some digestive problems and GI problems and constipation again. So, and autism, you know, how many kids have diarrhea or have constipation or abdominal pain? So I think the, the bowels tell you, 
it is a bit of a taboo because it is, you know, it's dirty. You're not supposed to touch it. And so probably, I don't know, uh, in the big picture, maybe that's why it was put in. The secrets of life are in stools. So nobody touches it. But I think we need to touch it to kind of understand. So it's, it, in my way, it's a, little, it's a bit funny because and I say it in the book, I was five years old and I used to pray to God to help me understand the meaning of life. Little that I see, God has a sense of humor because he took me into the this, I'm sorry, SH.T business. And so, and there are some things we're seeing. We can't ignore them. So- Thank you so much for having me. That it has fun. been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening to the Gut Health Reset Podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, leave a rating and a review so more people can hear about the podcast. And hey, take a screenshot of this episode and tag Dr. Anne Marie on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Anne Marie Barter. And for more resources, just visit DrAnneMarieBarter.com.